the Lord God reigns forever and ever, and he reigns over his people. And we are those people who get the privilege of living under the rule of such a gracious and loving God. This morning, we're stepping outside of our Romans series just on this anniversary Sunday to kind of stake out a course uh, as we look ahead to where God's taking us, not, an, not in some kind of strategic way of thinking through, well, what's the plan for the next year? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you and me getting on the same page with the Lord God. What is he doing and what is he trying to accomplish in us, working to accomplish in us? And that's simply to conform us to the image of Christ. He wants us to be like the Savior. And so as we think about that this morning, as there's a passage in Matthew 14 I want us to look at together. And in this one little snapshot of one portion of the ministry of Jesus, there's a pattern that's pictured for us. And that pattern is to be replicated in the lives of all those who follow him. And so we want to look at that together this morning, and as we as individuals embrace that pattern, it impacts the whole congregation as the body of Christ is assembled of members, just like you, that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, it says in in Ephesians 4. And so let's look together to Matthew chapter 14, a very familiar passage. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we've got one for you. We're counting on the chance to be able to walk you through the scriptures today. And so in the Bible, in the rack, in the chair in front of you, uh, the passage today is on page 820. It's Matthew 14. We're going to begin reading in verse 23. And so let's begin that together. And by the way, if you're a guest and you don't own a Bible, you do now. You can take that one home with you. That one's yours. But let me begin reading as Christ is getting ready to enter into another amazing period of time of ministry. When Jesus heard this, verse 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. If you can get this picture, he's, he's leaving and he's going by boat to another place. And he's not obviously that far offshore. So people are watching what's going on and they're running around by the shore trying to anticipate where's he going to go land. And so they're already getting there before he gets there. So he's trying to withdraw by boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we, uh, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd. And they all ate, were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So he begins with an intent. He ends with a fulfillment of his intent. And everything that happens in between is for our edification to learn, Lord, what is the pattern you're giving us here? So let's pray together, and we want to learn this pattern and see how that is going to impact each one of us. It's very simple lessons in terms of how Christ ordered his days so that we can order ours in the same way. Let's pray. Father, teach us. You're good at teaching. 
you give instruction in biblical truth in a way that, that your spirit makes alive in our hearts and minds. And, and as different as we are, these same truths are intended to shape us so that we all are being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we want. And so, Father, may we embrace these things by the power of your spirit for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So what do you think of yourself? It's an interesting question most of us have thought about. We've, we've processed it because all of us have ideas about ourselves. We, we think of ourselves. We try not to because that seems a little self-serving, but we do. Uh, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we're thinking, oh, my. Um, God, I wish you had done that differently or whatever else it is. I'm at the age where I'm now, like, plucking things and, and, you know, and trying to figure out, you know, what in the world happened there and there and everywhere. And so we have ideas about ourselves. And some of us have highly inflated ideas about who we are. And all of you know that that's not you, but it's those other people. And, uh, and you have a very, very good one. And then others have horribly inferiority complex kind of personalities where they've been told from childhood you're nothing you're never going to be anything you're a nobody you can't accomplish anything and you've believed it romans 12 as we're walking through the series of studies in romans romans 12 has a verse in, in uh that 12th chapter verse 3 that says that that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think good advice But he goes on to say, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Another translation says, to have a sane estimation of who we are. Don't don't place it too high, but also don't be so self-deprecating that you place it too low. What he wants us to think rightly and sanely and soberly about is that God thinks of us in a certain way. He wants us to think of ourselves as God thinks of us. That's a great thing. Because when he sees us in Christ, he sees us having put off that old person that we used to be before Christ saved us from our sin and made us new creatures. He looks at us now, and he doesn't see what we could have been if we hadn't messed things up so badly. He sees us in Christ. And he sees Christ working in us. And he sees that we're his workmanship. And he sees us as he is making us to become. And, and he who began that good work in us in Philippians 1, 6 says that he will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ. So he sees us as we're going to be. And so we are to have that same estimation of ourselves that he has of us. That's hard. But that's growing in Christlikeness. It's following the pattern of what God has called us to do, to have his perspective on things, so that we understand that, Lord, you are the king, you are the sovereign, you are the reigning ruler of all that is, and therefore we need to have your perspective on things. About 20 years ago, I came across a story about King Canute, and some of you know King Canute from history studies, and as a matter of fact, there was a guy in the earlier service who's a student of this, and he could tell me everything from like when King Canute came and his son and his grandson became king, you know, I'm thinking like, dude, Whoa, all I know is King Canute, and I know just a little bit of the story, but the story is that his brother was the king of Denmark, and he, through his circumstances, uh, became the king of England. And then because he was a good king, this was in the 11th century, and so as he was a good king, he eventually became the king of Denmark and Sweden, and in the process, there gathered around him people who always gather around 
people in leadership roles like that, particularly rich kings. And the flattering voices were profoundly, cloyingly pouring out these sweet phrases upon him and talking about how great you are, king. Canute, you're awesome. You're great. You're... And so he was hearing this for a while. He needed some perspective. So he asked his guys, he said, I need to go down to the shore and, and I want you to take a chair. So he, they take a chair down to the ocean for him and he sits the chair on the, on the coast, right? And he's watching and the water is coming in, the waves are coming in and he's watching this for a while. And then he stands up and he says, waves be still. And the waves immediately didn't. <laughs> um, it didn't work that way. And, and so he again, be still, stop coming in. And, and the waves didn't stop coming in. He's King Canute, not King Jesus. And so it wasn't working, and he knew it wasn't working. What he was doing, and this is whether it's legend or embellishment or whatever else, the, the story is that as he saw that happen, was this an object lesson for his cronies or, or for himself or as a statement? We don't know. But what he did is he took his crown off and he went back into town. He found a statue of the crucified Christ, hung his crown on the statue and said, I'll never wear the crown again that belongs to another. Jesus is the king. I'm just one of his servants. That, my friends, is perspective. Now, this is not to say you need to leave now and go to the beach. It's raining down there. You don't want to do that. But, but this is to say all of us need to take time and gain the perspective that Canute had. I need to get my crown where it belongs. I need to get it off my head. I need to get off my throne. I need to stop thinking and pretending that I'm in control of my own destiny and that I have the power to do everything I want the way I want it. We need to stop thinking that way and order our steps according to the pattern that Christ has set for us. Why? Because he is conforming us to his image. He is working in us to reproduce his character and his life in our life. And so today as we begin our 38th year of ministry, we begin it with the understanding that we will keep our eyes on the place where the crown is. And we will keep our eyes on the throne where the king reigns in resplendent glory. That's who we are. And it begins with each one of us understanding that, gaining perspective, withdrawing from all the stuff that we do that keeps us so occupied and preoccupied with this world that we lose perspective and begin to think that this is what it's all about. And so Jesus taught his disciples about this ultimate purpose that we're living for. He taught taught them about what it means to understand that we live in every way for the glory of God in all things. It's not about us. And so we need to stop patterning our lives after ourselves and patterning our lives after the one who gave himself for us. So when we became new creatures in Christ, this is what he had in mind. And so Matthew 6, verse 33, very basic starting point is seek first his kingdom his righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you. That's the starting point of understanding what Jesus is doing in Matthew 14. Now, Eugene Peterson did a, a paraphrase of, of the Bible, and there's some fascinating ways that he's expressed things. In verse 33, I think, is one of his best. And this is what he says. In translating, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here's how Peterson translated it. And this is Jesus speaking. What I'm trying to do is get you to relax. <laughs> Isn't that cool? 
just kind of hear Jesus. I'm trying to get you to relax, not to be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. That's a good translation. No, it's a good paraphrase. The translation is clear. Get that priority of Christ. So how do we get discernment in setting godly priorities if we don't look at the one who was the model of that? Let's look at Christ. Let's see what happens here. And so in in this passage in Matthew 14, we're going to just take a, a brief overview of this and then find the way that this applies in our own lives. Jesus had an agenda, and it's replicated in many ways, all through the Gospels. But what, what was he doing? He starts off in, in verse 13 saying, we need to get away from the crowds. We need to move out of this hubbub, and we need to go to a desolate place. Why? Because Jesus always was looking for time to spend with his Father. He always was cutting out time in the day to get away and be with his Father. And so that's his starting point. I need to get away. I need to go there. Let's go in a boat to a desolate place. I need to spend time with God. This, this is replicated in other places in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had different versions of how this is explained, but that's what the purpose is. Get away. Get with the Father. People are running to the place, following the boat, and when Jesus gets there, it says that a huge crowd was waiting for him. Just exactly what he was hoping would happen. Let's go to a desolate place. And when he got there, there was a massive crowd of people waiting for him. Now, it says at the end of this passage that there were 5,000 men, besides women and children. You do the math. We talk about the feeding of the 5,000. More than likely, for every man there, there was at least a woman and a child. So you can multiply that at least by two. And there were more than likely a crowd of about 10,000 folks there. And Jesus is going to have some quiet time. What he does, shoo, people, get away. Don't bother me now. I'm, I'm surrounded by my entourage of secret service. People are going to protect me, and I'm going to be alone. No, that's not what happened at all. It says that he got there, he had compassion on them, and he started touching, hurting people. And it says he spent the day healing, hurting people. And so first pattern point, he wanted to spend time with the Father, it got interrupted by the multitudes, so he begins to do what he's been doing his entire earthly ministry. He starts touching, hurting people, just ministering to them, caring for them, loving them, making them feel important, getting to the place where each person there knows that if they've got a hurt that needs to be healed, Jesus is going to take care of it. Are you lonely? Jesus wants to welcome you and affirm you. You, you matter to me. If, if you are ill, I'm going to heal you. I want you to be made well. If you're in a situation where you've fallen into some area of sin or or issue where you need forgiveness, Jesus is saying, I want to do that for you. I'm here to touch hurting people. Agenda, time of the Father. Practical reality, he ends up without any sense of regret, any sense of of, uh, being angry at him or resentment toward him. He just comes in and starts touching hurting people. And then he moves to the next thing he does, and that is he starts teaching I'm sure all day long as he's healing people, he's not just doing it silently. As he's doing that, there's the pattern in all of the other times with crowds. He's he's teaching as he goes, but specifically he's teaching his disciples here some things. 
And he's not always just using words because in this passage, after they're saying, we need to send people away, <laughs> there, there's too many of them and there's not any food out here. Let's get them out of here and go to the villages and let them feed themselves. And Jesus says, no, you do it. Object lesson coming up. We don't have anything but some loaves and some fishes. Yeah, great. Bring them here. Can you imagine the conversation with the disciples at this point? He needed that time away. <laughs> he needed to get up on that mountain. I think he, you need to come apart or come apart. I think he's coming apart. <clears throat> What's he going to do with five loaves and some fishes? What happens is that he transcends the routine matter of let's have dinner together. and makes it extraordinary. We'll see some more about how he does that later on. But, but he does that. He just moves beyond the teaching of the disciples with this object lesson to transcending the routines of what they're doing and making that moment of mundaneness become an object lesson for the glory of God for eternity. And so these, these little pictures here, these little snapshots of Jesus wanting to spend time with his Father, that's what he longs to do. Should we long to do that as his followers? Yeah. Touching the hurting people that he ran into along the way. Not being the good Samaritan uh, uh, parable where you got religious people running by, hurting people on the side of the road. No, that's not the picture. We see Jesus stopping, caring, having compassion, and ministering to him along the way. I'm not going to go there to do good. I'm going to do what God's called me to do along the way. And then teaching the folks that he runs into when he gets there, either by object lessons or verbal lessons or whatever else. And then transcending the mundane and the routines of what he's doing by putting a touch of eternity on them and, and seeing the miraculous of his time with God manifest in a special way there. And so we look at, we, we see and we can discern on how to figure out what a, a godly priority ought to be. A godly priority ought to include those things. And so now we figure out what's the discipline in our lives that's going to put those things into us. Is it just discipline? No. <clears throat> we'll be a part of it, but it begins with a transformed heart. We, we need to become Christ's own. We need to put off the old nature, the Scriptures tell us, and then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we are to be clothed in Christ. We are crucified dead and buried when we put our faith in Christ, dead to our old sin, and then by the power of the resurrection, he says, I'm raising you to, to make you alive together with me. And that being alive together with me now enables you to be transformed so that you're conformed to the image of Christ. Now, discipline, yeah. Cultivation of this, absolutely. It's not innate. This is not natural to us to order our days accordingly. A week and a half ago, a little over a week and a half ago, Kathy and I are looking at our front yard. It's, it's like brown. It's, it's, you know, right by the sidewalk and the, and the driveway. It's dirt. You know, three months ago, beautiful fescue, thick, lush, gorgeous. Now it's like dirt. And it kind of gets a little grass in it, and then it grows out, and then there's some grass in the rest of the yard. But, but it's, it's, it's dirt. Now it's been raining for 10 days. Now it's wet dirt. You know, I thought it was going to be a different story. No, it's just wet dirt. And, and the rest of the, the grass is looking beautiful, but this is just North Carolina clay. It's just dirt. Now here's something. Else. Right across the driveway, we got weeds. Oh, my word. They are not needing any cultivation. They are flourishing. They flourished in the drought. I mean, they were just green and lush all the time. Why? Because the weeds don't need cultivation. The lawns and the gardens do. You know that. In our spiritual lives, our natural 
person, the, the person we used to, we don't need to cultivate that stuff. We're good at that. What has to happen is that there has to be a disciplined cultivation of the life of Christ in us for that to happen. And so what are the things that Christ is looking to reproduce in us? If he's thinking, I need to spend time with my father, do you think we need to spend less? He's Jesus. And he wants that time with his father. How do we get to the place where we have the discipline of our priorities such that we are ordering our days in such a way that we are marking off the time to do what Christ has said is important by the way he lived? And so we begin by thinking, what do we need to do that? We need solitude. And by the way, these are going to be four S's. It's going to be real easy for you to tell when I'm done. Four S's. That's fourth. Okay. First one is solitude. You need to be alone to be able to have time with the Father. This is good, being together corporately to worship. This is anticipated. This is expected. This is actually put before us. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, he says in Hebrews chapter 24, 10, 24. But, but that's, this is not what he's talking about here. This is the corporate gathering that is going to be shallow and superficial if we have not had individual solitude prior to coming together here. The depth of the roots, the richness of the fellowship, the, the breadth of the worship will, will not be there unless we've been attending to that when we're by ourselves. That's the way the scriptures teach us the relationship works. So we begin with solitude. We carve out times for ourselves. We're not good at that. We, we find ourselves constantly crowded in our worlds. We, we are surrounded with noise. We're surrounded with people. We're, we're just all over the place with people who are from all over the place surrounding us. And Jesus found himself in that situation there in this story. Multitudes, 10,000 people is no small crowd. And so we need that time alone with God. What are we going to do when we get there? Well, we need to spend time in the Scriptures. Now, Jesus himself was the incarnate word, so we don't get the picture of Jesus having a little kind of slip pocket in his robe for a Gideon Bible or something got tucked in there. I'm not picturing that, or he's carrying the Torah with him up the mountain. I mean, but we do know that he was, he understood, knew, and could quote the scriptures at length. So we know he was there in the word somehow or another as he was doing that. So he's spending time with the Father, there's truth that's there in that communication. We need that truth from the Scriptures. So whenever we're in solitude, when we're together with the Lord, we are letting the Word of God dwell in us richly, Colossians 3 says. That's what's supposed to happen. We're, we're to do what the psalmist says, that we are to make sure that we're hiding the Word of God in our hearts, that we might not sin against Him. We are to be people who are saturated with the Scriptures in solitude. Now, I'm not talking about, although there's great value in, I'm not talking about just reading through the Bible. You know, and, and okay, today is, you know, October 4th, and today's lesson, I'm supposed to be reading this, and man, I've missed three weeks in a row. I've got to be spending all day Thursday reading the Bible, you know, catch up, check it off, be done. No, that, that's it's important to be able to read through the Scriptures. But that's not a substitute for letting the Word of God dwell in you richly. That happens when you're alone. Solitude, not listening to I. Uh, iPods, giving you podcasts, not listening just to sermons, not just coming to church, not just going to Bible studies, not just going to life classes, although all those are a part of it. But I'm talking today specifically about solitude. Time when you and the Father are alone with His Word. Some of you are thinking, where would I find solitude? Young moms, a word of encouragement, be discouraged. (laughs) 
right? Because you're not alone. Because whatever time you want to have your solitude and you start saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get up at 6 because the baby's been getting up at 6.30. So I, I need a good 20 minutes or so with just me and the Lord. And I need to do that. You set the clock for 6 o'clock, the baby's going to wake up at 6.05. Or worse, 5.55. And you're never even going to hear the alarm. And so your solitude gets squeezed. You're wondering, how in the world am I ever going to... And you have an insensitive husband that's hearing this sermon today and you're elbowing. Don't, don't elbow him. He's getting it. Who needs to help you find that time. And you need to help him find that time. Not nagging, not saying, did you have your quiet time today? Are you holy? You know, no. No, just, just encouraging. Modeling it. Being alone with the Lord. Now, some of you are, are surrounded by large families or you've got several roommates. Some of you are thinking, I wish... Because I'm alone. I'm single. I, I don't have a roommate. I don't have anybody who's close to me. I, I want to break the solitude. I want some, I want some company. We, we hear that and we understand. And there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. I, I get that. But count the blessing of your solitude as a gift and a treasure. Rather than despise that and be resentful of it, Count that as a blessing from God as God is preparing you because it says in the Psalms, he places the lonely in families. He's going to get you where he wants you to be. So right now, you take advantage of the solitude that you have that other people are longing for. But all of us need solitude to be in the word. Secondly, to be in prayer. Not just rehearsing platitudes, but to actually converse with God and to be in his presence long enough to connect with him and make sure that we're in his presence and we're not just talking at the ceiling, but we're actually conversing with God. And then have time also to meditate and to reflect and to allow him to speak to you those things that he's not going to shout at you across the room. God is the lover of our souls, but he's not the lover who screams his affections across a crowded room. There's that still, small voice that he speaks to us about. So solitude. Jesus modeled a need for and a desire for solitude to be one who has time with his father. Second thing he did, he responded to the culture around him. He touched the hurting. We move in our world with a mind towards serving. That same idea of touching the hurting people, serving others, finding a way to do that. We don't need a city serve to be able to serve. It helps us to think outside the box, but, but we don't need to do that. We just need to be able to think in terms of getting outside of ourselves and the people who are the most spiritually healthy and mentally healthy and emotionally healthy are those who are vested in others, the most unhealthy ones who are so, I'm just doing terrible. It's just life is so hard. People are just, rah, rah, rah. And, and they're, I need counseling. I know you need to get out of yourself and start serving somebody. You just need to start looking at others with a different eye. They're not imposing and interrupting on your world. They're there by God's grace because he has his spirit dwelling in you. And in solitude, he will change your heart so that you are able to see that the fields are indeed white into harvest. And yes, there is a mass out there of people who are harassed and lonely and desperate without a shepherd. And they need to know Christ. And you know him. You can, you can serve them and lead them to the Savior. And that's the picture he's given here. I will touch hurting people. I will go after them and help them understand that there's a Father in heaven who loves them enough to send a Savior for them, and he's going to surround them with people who will demonstrate that love, and that's us. So solitude we're seeking. Serving is what we need to be pouring ourselves into. Thirdly, and I'm going to switch the order here, simplicity. Transcending the routines 
and making those things extraordinary. Because Jesus took the normal, ordinary, simple task of let's have dinner together. But there were 10,000 people. And he transcended the routine with a touch of heaven in that moment. And all of a sudden, the mundane became sacred because Jesus was in touch with his father. He had been functioning in a way that's serving those folks. And now he moves to a place where his basic action of having a meal, which we all do, became a moment of simple grace in the lives of thousands of folks. And then he does what the rest of us do to get from one place to another. What do you do? You walk. You may be walking just to your car, but you walk. And so Jesus just walks out to where his disciples are. The only thing is, there's just water between him and those disciples. And so he's walking normally, routinely, but he's walking on water, which is far from routine and far from normal. And he transcends the routine with his simple act of just doing something in the power of God that makes it amazing. And so what are we called to do? We, we need to simplify the way we're investing our lives. We need to allow the, the Spirit of God to take the, the simple things in our lives and make them profoundly sacred and holy because God's hands on them. But we've got them so cluttered up, we can't get to the transcendent part because they're so stuffed with stuff. Friday, I went into my closet and started pulling shirts on hangers there, pulling those things out, and I carry my shirts on hangers out of my closet. Simplicity, right? No, I'm just moving them to another closet. And I, I'm bringing the clothes from that closet in and replacing them with long sleeve shirts instead of short sleeve shirts. I'm getting ready for the change of seasons. And I'm thinking, this is, there's nothing simple about this. I'm not simplifying anything. Why have I got so many shirts? Because you got that many pants. I mean, they got to work together, you know? And you got that many because you get that many shoes. And you got, look at all those baseball hats you got up there. And what is that all about? And, and we're looking, and there's nothing simple about it. <clears throat> and so, yard sales are awesome ideas. And Raleigh Rescue Mission and Goodwill and, and other places, clothes closets, get some of that stuff out and unclutter your lives and things like that. And, and start looking at where all you've got money going and thinking, you know what? Uh, there's not the necessity for me to be doing all of this stuff because I'm saying I don't have enough for the kingdom, but I got enough for all this other stuff. Why in the world can I just say, no, I can do this because this is the thing that matters the most? Well, my life is too complicated. Simplicity. Begin to to chop away individually and collectively as a church to do that, to be able to let the, the transcendent of the routine become a place where God can begin to work in powerful ways because we've done the same thing to our calendars that we've done to our homes. We've got addicts stuffed with stuff. And you're saying, well, I'm, I'm still young. We don't have an addict stuff. Your parents have it, and they're waiting for you to get a house big enough. <laughs> they're going, oh, yeah, they're going to get, oh, they're getting a new house. They got an attic. <laughs> they're going to get it. You know, they got, they got stuff from your childhood. They got, they got clothes that your babies will never wear, but they're saving them for them. Grandparents, are you, are you hearing me? You've got that stuff. And so let's simplify. Let's get rid of some of that stuff, and then do the same thing with our decluttering of our schedules. The greatest indictment for, the, for those who think, we don't have time. I'd love to spend time with the Father in prayer. I'd love to, I'd love to serve others, but I just don't have time. Uh, simplicity changes that because you've got one word that's staring you down. It's a, it's a, it's a multiple word. It's two syllables, 
And it says you got a lot more time than you think. That's right. <laughs> Facebook. Facebook is, is God's statement to our culture that, oh, you got plenty of time. You got a lot of time. Oh, we need, oh, I just, I just, I just got the sesame seed out of my teeth. I got to put that down. And I, oh, I just, oh, I just saw a rabbit in the back. Oh, God, I got that down. And I, and I was in this neighborhood. I got to tell the people who live in that neighborhood. I've got to, oh, got to tell them. Yeah, so that you can tweet them now. Uh, so that you don't have to wait to get to faith. But you got all this stuff going on. God's saying, oh, you got time. And those who, you know, just, I just don't have time. I spent eight hours watching ball games yesterday. Oh, well, that hurt. But that's because they were trying to get out of the do-do list, honey, that you were giving them. You know? And so we all got this stuff in just simplicity. Let's strip it down to what really matters. Martha and Mary were hosting Jesus, and Martha comes in. She messed up. She didn't know who she's talking to. She comes in, Jesus, Mary won't help me. What is the deal? I'm doing all the work. I'm, I'm killing myself, working my fingers to the bone. This is a... Not even a Gene Peterson tra- paraphrase. I'm, I'm doing all this. And look at what she's doing. She's sitting there doing nothing. And Jesus said, well, here's the deal, Martha. She's chosen the better part. I'm sure she's swallowing her tongue. Getting out. She's not choosing anything. She's chosen the better part because she is sitting at my feet listening to the master. Let's get, let's get things down to basics. You get time with your father in solitude. You start looking around you and seeing what kind of opportunities to serve the Father is giving you. You simplify your life so that you can recognize those opportunities. And then the fourth picture, he taught his disciples, we need to speak up for Christ. We're we're teaching that right now in our life classes. How do you live life on mission with a full intentionality of connecting people who don't know Christ with the Savior? you got to reach people with the gospel, and you got to teach believers that that's important. And that process is always going on where we speak up about what God has done in our lives. Folks, this is a simple pattern of life that God wants to replicate in each one of us. Seek solitude with the Father. Look for serving opportunities wherever God puts them in your path. Simplify your life so that the routine can become transformed as God allows you to see his hand at work all along that you've never watched before because it was so muddied up with complexity. And then you tell others about it and speak of the sweetness of his grace and tell the gospel story and tell it well. So King Canute's sitting there thinking, i got a throne, I've got a crown. Jesus is on the throne and he wears the crown. I'm not wearing this anymore. We've got to, each one of us in our lives, figure out what we're wearing crowns about and get the crown where it belongs. And we've got to figure out whatever throne we think we're sitting on and get off of it, and get our priorities along the patterns of what Christ has developed for us. You may, like King Canute, need to go to the beach. Yes, the pastor said that. Sit there and just watch those waves come in, and then look up at night at the stars, and just think, whatever thought I ever had of wearing a crown, that's done. Go, if you can't get to the beach, go watch the sun rise over a mountain. That'll wake you up really good. Or, or get you a war room or a prayer closet in your home and go and be still and know that he's the Lord. But get your perspective. Get your eyes trained on what matters the most and then seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest of the stuff will sort itself out. 
That's where we're trying to go as a church as we enter the 38th year of our ministry. We want to seek a way for you to find solitude for the Lord so that there's a richness and a depth and a substance to our worship times and our gatherings together, that we would be a people who are individually with a mind to serve, that we're outward focused, not inward focused. It's not about us. It's about how we are agents of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ and how we can get to the place where simplicity defines us. How can I do with less so that I can do more for the sake of the kingdom? And then how can I speak much of my Savior and do it more often? That leads us to the table this morning. Our deacons and and elders are going to come. And if you know Christ, we want you to come to this table and share with us here. We want you to take the bread as a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for you. We want you to take that cup and remember that his blood paid for your sin so that you're no longer condemned because Christ took that sin upon himself, if indeed you know Christ as Savior. If you don't know Christ as Savior, don't take the bread, don't take the cup. Let Let the tray just pass by you. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, says, brings condemnation on yourself. You don't need to do that. So if you don't know Christ, don't receive these things. But if you do, receive it with great thanksgiving. Because when we finish taking the Lord's Supper, we're going to come before the throne. And we're going to worship the Lamb of God, the slain one, Jesus, who gave his life for us. And we want his life to become ours. So that the patterns that were true of him will be true of us. And that our lives will be transformed. So we're going to come to the table. And we want to share these things together. Uh, we're going to have the privilege of, of hearing our hearts respond to God's heart. Will's going to pray for all of us, and he's going to give thanks for the bread and the cup, and then these guys are going to share it with you. And after we've gotten everybody served, then I'll come back and I'll lead us through this, and then we're going to come together from that place of worship to the next, and we'll leave here a people who are really glad we've been in the presence of God. So, Will, if you'll pray, give thanks for us.